The idea of enough is very interesting to me. The idea that the planet doesn't have enough for us on our current trajectory is at the heart of that. But the question of whether the planet has enough for everyone on the planet if we change the way we do things is an interesting one. Can we sustain seven, eight, nine billion people on the planet if everyone, if everyone's idea of enough was balanced with that equation? Um, I don't know, but I think it's possible. I think that we, we've, if we've shown nothing else as a species, as humans, it's adaptability and resiliency. And uh, when forced to, we can do surprisingly monumental things and changes when the threat becomes real to us. Another episode of the Conscient Podcast. I'm with Mark Rosen. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. We are walking in the streets near his home. And you'll tell us about your house because I'm really excited about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've, I know Mark's parents from years ago in the BAMP Center, Robert Rosen and Debbie Rosen. I don't know. She changed her name? Or? She still goes by Rosen, but oh. Alpa as well. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, Mark, we'll start by just getting to know you a bit. Um, what, who are you and what do you do? Um, my name's Mark Rosen. I'm living in Ottawa now for 21 years, but I'm originally from Canmore, Alberta. Grew up there in the mountains. Uh, but I am an architect and an energy advisor and a building scientist. And my work uh, primarily focuses on energy efficiency in the residential construction and design uh, sector. So you're not an artist per se? Not per se, only, in, only to the extent that architecture falls into the artistic realm with one foot on occasion. Right. Well, I, I think it's, it's definitely an artistic practice, right. but it also is a scientific one, of course, mm-hmm. and a technical one and so on. Uh, well, one of the reasons I, I want to invite you on the, on the program is to talk about uh, uh, your, your thoughts around, you know, reality, mm. <laughs> <laughs> which, as an architect, you have to be very sort of practical and grounded, but it's also what I'm exploring this year, you know, the the idea of how does one accept the reality of where we're at. Mm-hmm. And I know you're an environmentalist by the things that you do, um, where we're at. Uh, so what, what is reality to you? Journalist Jack Miles Reality, as defined by the Oxford Dictionary, is the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. Instead of being the method through which we observe a thing, reality is the nature or truth 
of this thing. Reality is complicated to me. <laughs> I find uh, I find there's been over the past 10 years professionally for me there's been a very interesting and challenging balance between working in a sector that provides housing for people which is a basic human need um, but that also is responsible for so much of the destruction of natural landscapes and the production of harmful emissions uh, in, in the environment. And specifically, a lot of my work as an energy advisor has been working with large developers that are building suburbia, frankly. Uh, and it's been an interesting reconciliation for me to work with builders that are building a housing type that in, it, it, at its fundamental level is not a sustainable uh, urban strategy, in my opinion. But recognizing that the reality is that it exists, it is growing quickly, it is in demand in society, and that an action that I can take is to try and redirect it in small increments uh, to be better than what it otherwise would be. And so for me, I think reality in the context of, of the podcast and, and the episode that, that I listened to has been this, this recognition that it's, it's very often a gray spectrum that we operate on in terms of what is good and what is bad. And that uh, I think reality has the, the potential to prevent you from starting on something if you are holding out for the perfect opportunity to make a large impact. And that's really been, been at the heart of my, my work-life balance, I suppose you could say, over the last, last 10 years. We're going to stop a little soundscape moment here. We have a, uh, somebody with a... What's that called? A, uh, an extension ladder. An extension ladder, but it makes quite a lovely sound and it's sort of resonating. So what I do sometimes in these uh, conversations, Mark, is uh, do a little sound walk at mm. the same time as because it's also an awareness exercise. But I, I'm interested in your response because it's unlike many I've received so far. People always speak uh, eloquently about what they feel, think and feel uh, reality is because for me it's about accepting the science mm-hmm. that, that seems unbelievable mm. that we, we got to this point, you know. And you've chosen a profession that is essentially um, designing the future, right? So you have to have some faith in the future because you're, <laughs> you're designing, like, but like you yes. say, it's, 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 it's a compromise to say build suburbia which we know is problematic yeah. uh, in terms of the ideal yeah. urban space but then you know people have to live somewhere and right yeah it's uh, I, I've been trying a lot you know on a personal level over the last number of years to, to be more in tune with the idea of presence and allowing what is to be and I, I listened to Eckhart Tolle quite a bit on, on that topic which is a you know a way of appreciating reality in the moment in your current context, but uh, on the larger scale with, with construction and, and design, that idea of building for the future and how that relates to a climate emergency is, is very abstract in a way. It's, it's somewhere out there and it's difficult, to, it's difficult to point to in a tangible way for a lot of people that are controlling that process. Um, and perhaps to them it's, 
as foreign enough as to be outside of their sphere of concern, so to speak. You know, the, the impetus of business and economy really drives that sector. And to date, although we are seeing signs that this might start to shift a little bit, to date that has been the, the sustainability acts, acts or the sustainability angle has been a marketing tool or some small you know competitive differentiator more than it has been a core value of that industry i found but there are signs that that is changing in some ways political science professor thomas homer dixon today's global spanning crises all stem from common sources belief and values that are too self-centered political systems that are too hidebound, economies that are too rapacious, and technologies that are too dirty for a small, crowded planet with dwindling resources and fraying natural systems. But you've committed to a green approach to design, I assume, because you've, you've built your own home yes. that way. So how, what are the values behind that kind of work? Well, I think there's a few different reasons that I've committed to that in my architectural work and in my design work. Uh, at the heart of it, I think, I, you know, I have a young family. I have two girls now, seven and nine years old, that are growing up in a house that we built five years ago that is a very environmentally friendly house it's built to passive house standards and i see in my girls at that young age this acute awareness of what they're living in what they're growing up in my youngest uh talks about the fact that our house doesn't use any fossil fuels uh, except what might boost the grid on occasion in an intelligent way i mean with a passion of a of seven-year-old you know who hates all things gas just because that's what she's learned from our discussions but it's interesting to see the impact on them and to have them feel proud of me. I mean, there's a parental pride that just comes through yeah. in knowing that I've done something that is, that is good for them in the long run by introducing them to this concept. And with housing, I think that's very powerful because so often, with suburbia as an example, the house that a person aspires to in their adult life is the house of their childhood. It's what they know to want. And only after you've been shown what's out there can you know to look for it somewhere else. And uh, that's, that's kind of powerful that my kids now have an idea that houses don't have to be um, what I knew growing up, but can be something better for the planet, but also better for their lifestyle. And I think that's the other angle that's important to me is that I, I realized at some point over the last 10 years working in sustainable construction and architecture that in fact, better quality housing, better quality of life and sustainability in housing are mutually compatible ideas. And that if you design with sustainability at the heart of your process and as one of your um, inherent constraints that you will not allow yourself to stray from, it actually opens up opportunities to build better quality homes and facilitate better quality of life within those homes. It's very challenging nowadays 
in widespread practice because of the economy of that whole process. Construction is a, is a behemoth of an industry. It's difficult to shift. And at the core of that struggle right now is the cost of everything. The cost of housing is already exploding in a way that is making buying a home unattainable for so many people. And the thought of making housing more expensive so that it can be sustainable is such a tricky double-edged sword because if we don't do it, then we're in you know, a bigger, bigger problem because of what happens to the planet. Uh, but at the same time, if you make greenhouses that nobody can afford to live in, have you created another problem that's harmful in another way? So how do we fix that, Mark? Well, that's the big question. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. It's, uh, it's, it's an interesting one to work on. I think it's, it requires... What does it require? In some ways, it requires people to be open-minded about what they want in a house. Um, in, in other ways, I think, giving us a little bit of thought last night, I think that it requires that we continue to have a spectrum of, of influence, recognizing that a wholesale transformation of the housing industry overnight, while not impossible, is highly unlikely because there are so many influencing economic factors, political factors, lobbyists, etc. But if we continue to have a spectrum of influence, and by that I mean builders and architects and home buyers at the, the leading edge who are going to request more, innovate, push the boundaries, that it will start to pull things towards that direction in a similar way to, I think, what the electric car industry has shown us is possible. Um, in that industry, you know, the parallel that I see was there was a tipping point at which the electric car was seen to be not just a compromise that was good for the planet, but in fact, an opportunity to improve your quality of life and be good for the planet at the same time. And as soon as it was recognized that you could have both, that it was not um, a very challenging personal sacrifice to make to have both, then suddenly adopting was easy for the masses. Right. And, and that transition is happening at full speed right now. So how do you get there in houses? I don't know. There's a lot of work to do there. But, uh, well, I mean, the society needs to shift from an unsustainable model to a sustainable model. Yeah. But the thing about housing is that you can't really do without it, and especially in a country like Canada. We, can, yeah. we would literally freeze to death in the winter. Yes. Uh, whereas you probably can get away without having a car. You can share. You can share houses, but it's harder. Right. Um, but my, my goal in, in this, all this work around uh, the notion of conscience and the climate emergency is to think through the things that seem impossible now mm. and, and, and give us credit for not only our imagination and creativity, but our ability to adapt to, I use the word in reality, but, but the truth. The mm -hmm. truth is that we've kind of blown uh, the resources around us, like the ecosystems are falling apart. And it's, you know, there's something you said to me uh, uh, many months ago about, it was either a lost generation or a skipped generation, but how younger people like you um, kind of have to pay for the excesses of, of previous generations. Right. You still think that? <laughs> Activist Naomi Klein. What the climate needs to avoid collapse 
is a contraction in humanity's use of resources. And what our economic model demands to avoid collapse is unfettered expansion. Only one of these sets of rules can be changed, and it's not the laws of nature. Yeah, but I think that I've, 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 I've thought about that in a, in a hopeful context, in a way. But thinking back on it now and, and, and trying to re, reassess that, that idea, what I was thinking, I think, when I said that was that we, we know what needs to be done in order to turn the corner. I think it's kind of the theoretical problem has been solved, if you will. We understand that a massive shift is needed. And we can even sit down and, and talk about how in housing, let's say, that could be, you know, um, microgrids, self-sustaining communities, net zero carbon houses. Uh, there's a lot of things that, that we could put into practice if money was no object and policy was no object. The idea of a lost generation or a generation that, that has to pay for that is that in order to get there quickly, you have to transition and there's a generation that has to pay for that transition. And on a simple level, you can look at an industry like, um, let's say, natural gas industry, at the oil industry, uh, and how you could argue that there are as many jobs in green energy available as there would be lost in oil if you made the transition overnight. But in order to do that transition, everyone in that sector needs to lose their job, re-educate, be reassigned, and possibly relocated with their families in order to make that come true. And that's a painful thing to go through on a personal immediate level as a family or as an individual. And so if we don't have a generation that's willing to be the ones to pay that price, then it gets deferred and it gets deferred uh, further down the road. Now, the hopeful side of that in my mind is that much like my own girls are growing up with an appreciation for a different type of house to grow up in, I think we see that the core values that are essential to developing that sustainable way of life are, are finding their way into younger people in a more centered way, at least in my bubble. And, and perhaps that's a, you know, you, in your um, episode, you talk about the difference between reality versus your perception of reality. And so this might be a biased viewpoint because from where I'm standing, perhaps the city that I live in or the circles that I know have more progressive idea in this in this area than perhaps another neighborhood. Well, it's certainly a, a privileged, privileged point of view. Yes. Because both you and I and many others living in this country are privileged. Yes. Um, partially by circumstance, but also uh, just the way that things have unfolded. We have, we are, we are very lucky yeah. to have the resources that we have. And, and so I've been thinking about that and talking about it, uh, especially, you know, um, male privilege. Uh, and there are many different types of privilege, but as that unfolds, then you start, then the world starts making more sense. You know, you see why people are talking about a just transition now. That we can't go ahead and just fix climate change. We have to address the inequities that are underlying colonialism and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, and I think we are. You know, I've I've noticed momentum uh, in the arts and cultural sector, but also more broadly, where people are 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 not only waking up because. Waking up can be terrifying, right? All of a right. sudden, you realize what's really going on. You, 
you don't know what to do, but there, there's a few steps beyond that where you, you feel more confident about the world that you want to leave your children. Mm -hmm. and, and, there, and then you do the most strategic things that you can do, right? right. In my case, you know, it's talking to people like you. And, that, and we have another soundscape moment here of a car uh, starting up and we're moving towards um, a noisier place, but that's also part of urban life. It is, absolutely. <laughs> So we're gonna live with that. We'll, we'll walk this sure. way. Um, so yeah, I, I've I've stopped talking about hope in the conventional sense because it's a bit glib to uh, to say that I'm hopeful or not hopeful. But sure. but I do feel sometimes that um, the notion of uncertainty, uh, and I don't know what you think about this, but the the, the, the idea that we actually don't know what will happen, yep. um, and that there are many many possibilities of yep. paths that unexplored of uh, our, our ability to reconnect to nature, because we are capable of that. Yes. Writer, Rebecca Solnit. Hope locates itself in the premises that we don't know what will happen, and that in the spaciousness of uncertainty is room to act. So as an architect, I'm interested in, in how you see that notion of, call it hope, but of a future, because you're essentially, like I said earlier, you're, you're, you're in the business of designing um, how we're going to live, mm. uh, not just in terms of houses, but also public spaces and, yeah. and uh, other aspects. So how does that work in your mind as a as an architect <laughs> yeah and a father it's uh, i mean the the idea that you have that uncertainty and as uncertainty allowing for possible outcomes that we haven't considered yet is an interesting space to to kind of dive into deep thinking as an architect and and i find that there's there is actually in my experience quite a large jump or a gap that exists between the practical application of architecture as a profession that you do day to day with clients and the, the, the side of architecture that is more artistic or philosophical that you know is at the core of the education of architects in schools and, and at, at uh, universities and in those academic settings I think there's more exploration of that idea of what, what a city can be um, what a what new housing typology could be or a strategy for designing communities. And it's difficult to carve out space in your professional life once you get out into the quote-unquote real world uh, to continue to have that higher level of thought and not get consumed by, by the day-to-day. -day. That's where I find architecture perhaps has its greatest difference from other artistic practices in that it's, it's so tied up in practical considerations of physical constructability of uh, money from clients who drive processes uh, there are a lot of other contributing factors so not to be um, 
negative on that front, but I think that as architects, part of our challenge is simply to recognize the constraints of, of that construct for ourselves. And if we want to think about how we're going to change housing for the better, it has to be at some level on a larger scale than one house at a time, and perhaps even outside of the constructs of houses alone. Uh, one of the most interesting talks that I saw recently, I was at a conference uh, actually out in BC just before the pandemic lockdown happened, and the keynote speaker, I'll have to go back and look up his name because it escapes me at the moment, was talking about electric cars and the tipping point of electric cars, but also tied to electric cars, the idea of autonomous cars. And that once autonomous cars arrive and you no longer need to own and drive your own vehicle, how does that change how we plan cities? When you don't need your car, it could be driving other people around. You don't actually need car ownership anymore. Suddenly the parking space in a city becomes irrelevant because cars are always driving. You don't just leave them somewhere. And so you have 60% of the landscape of a city now possible to develop or convert back to green space or to do something else with. Um, businesses can suddenly become mobile. One of the examples he gave was imagine instead of getting in your car in suburb, commuting into the city and stopping at Starbucks, imagine if Starbucks or any other coffee shop had a bus that came without a driver to pick you up, made you your coffee on board, and you rode in a bus for 20 minutes to work with your coffee in hand and they don't need their physical coffee shop anymore, what does that become? So I think it's all, it's all, and that's why I said complexity is part of it, the core of this for me. It's very difficult to solve any problem when you look at it in a silo scenario. It has to expand beyond that. What opportunities do cars do for houses uh, and vice versa? Uh, it, it, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening there uh, that I think we have to pay attention to so that we have the opportunity to incorporate that thinking in, in our idea of what housing can be. Artist Diego Galafasi. Art is the space where we can ask very difficult questions and explore things in a more open-ended way and not be committed to solutions. Well, you've answered one of my questions, which is, what is the role of art mm. uh, in the sense, at least an architectural design sense, but more broadly, what do you think that the arts and culture can bring to the complexity of an issue like uh, the climate mm. emergency? What I really liked uh, that you highlighted in the episode was the idea that arts can pose uh, broad and deep questions without necessarily being bound to solutions so that you can't dismiss the question because there's not an answer. You can appreciate the question for what it reveals to you. And I think that's where art has a lot of potential to, to move us in a good direction because it allows, it can, it can bring to people questions that they didn't know they should be asking or, or topics that they didn't have any awareness of to begin with. Uh, and, and not be dismissed because they're not coming with an answer as well. They just can put it out there. And then you can start to, as you mentioned earlier, you can find your moment for action within that where you think there's a, a place for you to fit in and do some small thing. Artist Lance Garavi. While individual works of art, however genius, may have value, they won't do the trick. 
What we need is for all art to be about climate change. Well, right after that quote, there's another quote about how one day all art might be about climate change, you know? Right. And, and of course, that's speculation, right? Because we don't, we're looking at these beautiful buildings here in Ottawa. They're, we're so smart, right? We design these beautiful <laughs> places, and some of them are actually well-designed in the sense that they're durable, and yes. some of them made from sustainable materials. But, but we've also uh, create, we've, we've extinguished uh, living spaces in our buildings, you know, because we take, we take so much space. So there, there are a myriad of issues, um, and they're all interconnected. And because of the specialization of so many sectors, there's too little dialogue. And what I've been trying to do is to say, well, the arts are so fluid, right? They, they can be metaphorical, they can be very practical, like architecture and other... And, and we need more of them. Right. More... Uh, of those voices at the table when decisions are made and when um, yes when we're working through the issues metaphorically sometimes you know the, we, the one person talked a lot about speculative fiction you know how how we need to imagine a different future for ourselves that we can't see right mm-hmm. now and and then we would think about like for me housing is is uh, you know I don't need that much mm-hmm. I have more than I need. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do I do about that? Well, maybe I'll downsize. Maybe I'll, you know, uh, make a move. And uh, but but just thinking about issues like not not just your house, but everybody's need yes. for housing. Yeah, <laughs> right. The the, yeah. the the overall well-being of everyone uh, in in a in a decent way. Yes, uh, is really what we should aspire to. And how do we how do we get out of what we've become, which are sort of a consumer mm-hmm. society, into a society that is. Caring and you know, it will never be perfectly just, but it will at least be livable for yeah. everyone. Yeah, the, uh, is that too utopic? No, I don't think so. But it does require a shift in thinking, and I, I think that the the shift that I find very interesting to consider is when we, as a society or as individuals, stop thinking about more and start thinking about enough, mm-hmm. and. Housing is a perfect example of that. You know, you hear a lot of talk, for example, about how the cost of housing has skyrocketed and the real estate market is doing this and that. And, and there's a lot of, a lot of complexity and truth in, in all arguments about that. But if you look at what a house used to be 40 years ago, you drive, you know, through rural Ontario and you see the, the, the Kleenex box-shaped rectangular houses on a simple foundation, four windows that are all the same size, and you realize that the reason that house costs one-tenth of what a house costs today is because it was one-tenth as complicated. And the, the countertops were laminate, and the neighbor made the cabinets for the kitchen, and there was enough. There was enough house there to live in. And the houses that we aspire to now, collectively, are so much more complicated and so much more luxurious than that. Uh, and it's not to say that it's wrong to want to have a nicer house or to have nice things, but... When do you have enough house? When do you not need 2,500 square feet when 1,800 square feet would do? When is 1,800 square feet more than you need and 1,200 square feet would do? Um, and I think that we've, specifically with housing, that's been influenced by housing being perceived as an investment opportunity for people to build a retirement cushion for themselves. And that has taken away from the idea that you can simply pay to build a shelter that is adequate and then make that a little bit more attainable maybe save some money in the pockets to do something more sustainable with it. But to go back to the original idea, the idea 
of enough is very interesting to me because I think that there's an, I mean, there's conversation both ways in the climate conversation. The idea that the planet doesn't have enough for us on our current trajectory is at the heart of that. But the question of whether the planet has enough for everyone on the planet if we change the way we do things is an interesting one. Can we sustain seven, eight, nine billion people on the planet if everyone, if everyone's idea of enough was balanced with that equation? Um, I don't know, but I think it's possible. I think that we, we've, if we've shown nothing else as a species, as humans, it's adaptability and resiliency. And uh, when forced to, we can do surprisingly monumental things and changes when the threat becomes real to us. And that's been proven, I think, over the last year with the pandemic as an example, when we as a world realized that the pandemic was real, we have never seen so much science and research develop vaccines so quickly in our history. Money is being spent because we recognize that it has to be solved. Um, You brought up the example earlier in our conversation of World War II and how you can mobilize a society to achieve a goal when the goal is real. And perhaps the biggest challenge that is facing the climate emergency is that it's not real enough for enough people for them to feel that urgency of action that's required. And how do we get them to feel that sense of, not uh, panic, but uh, of urgency? Mm-hmm. That might be an open, open-ended question. But I'm not sure you <laughs> yeah. and I are going to resolve it today, but yeah, uh, I enjoy your, uh, the way you think because it's quite grounded, right? Mm. You're coming from a practice of, that has to forcibly be rigorous, right? In terms of yes. <laughs> you can't noodle around when you're building somebody's living space. Right. Um, but there's also a philosophical aspect to it where you can question the traditions and the, the uh, assumptions of any given profession. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I like that idea of, of enough, because enough is actually more than enough. Because life is beautiful, right? It's the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees are, yeah. are endlessly... Not, not everybody loves them the ways I do and others do, but uh, there's something about just even beyond. So what's the next step beyond enough? Mm. I think it's completeness. Like, mm. like in Zen, mm-hmm. we talk about doing things completely. Mm. And, and you don't need a lot in Zen. You sit down, you look at a stairwell, blanket of a wall, and you experience life. But, you know, life is air. And it's, it's uh, the simple things that are so deep. They're endlessly deep. Right. Um, and somehow we've gotten away from that. We just want more and more and more. Yeah. And, and I'm not an expert, but I, I, I'm hearing in your discourse uh, a sense of, uh, of pragmatism that I'm... That in, inspiring, right? Mm. Because there is a sense that we can, we have done great things. We can do great things. Somehow we don't quite see it on the horizon yet, but it might just be uh, not so far. It, yeah. it needs to be not so far. Right. But anyway. And and when you take a, a pragmatic approach to certain things, it gives you um, small milestones to hit, which is, a, is is a useful way forward. It's it's not necessarily. You know, um, from a climate activism point of view, uh, entirely useful as the only solution because if we only take baby steps forward, we won't get there in time. And the tipping point of, of you know the climate flipping in the wrong direction may arrive before we get to where we need to go. But it kind of goes back to that idea 
that I started with of a spectrum of things. You know, it's important that we have climate activism, um, artistic climate activism, uh, and, and leaders that are pushing the envelope and telling us all that we need to change everything tomorrow. And then it's important that we have people that are taking the baby steps to make incremental change in the middle of the pack, and that that whole process is not exclusive, that, that we don't condemn the trade or the industry that is doing something because it's not doing everything. That we allow for people to have an electric car and a gas range and not condemn them as being oblivious to the climate emergency. So it's not to forgive mindless behavior. I think that we have to hold each other accountable. It's, it's good once in a while to listen to somebody uh, who's passionate about this speak, like a Greta, Greta Thunberg, or I was uh, in a panel discussion with uh, Elizabeth May not too recently, and uh, that was inspiring because she just lays it out. We have to do this and we have to do it today. And, and hearing that is very important because it reminds us that it's real and that it's urgent. Activist Greta Thunberg. For me, hope is the feeling that keeps you going, even though all odds may be against you. For me, hope comes from action, not just words. For me, hope is telling it like it is. But it doesn't allow me to, for example, on a personal level, go into my office on Monday morning, call my builder clients and tell them if they don't do everything better tomorrow, I'm afraid we can't work together anymore. Because mm -hmm. all that'll do is put me out of a job and the builders won't, won't make any change. Yeah. So I have to nudge where I can and then go all the way where I can. And my house was an opportunity for me to do that, I think. Um, because I was doing it for myself and my children, I was able to build it to the highest degree of sustainability that I could conceive of at the time. And looking back on it five years down the road, there are things that I could have done more of. Looking back on it, it could be better. Uh, it could be lower energy. It could be more carbon neutral. There are a lot of things that I can improve. But I feel good that I was able to take that step in the context that I was in at the time. Um, and that just because I built my house that way, it doesn't mean that I can't work with people who are building houses in another way and try and allow the two to inform each other. Well, the, the house is an example of... Uh, I mean, it's not a perfect model either, right? Because you did use natural resources to build that house, but yeah. one assumes that, it, that, that over time, it's a better use of those resources than, than a less efficient house. Right. That's, right. I think, the theory, right? Yeah, in part, that's the theory. There's some very interesting work going on these days however, that is recognizing that, again, we need a wider lens because we've been focused over the last 30 years in housing on moving to lower energy housing on a consumption level. So it's this narrow time frame where the house is finished, occupied, and we look at how much energy is being used to operate the house for the people to live in the house. With almost a willful blindness, 
to how much energy went into building the house in the first place. Yeah. Now, that's not universal. There are standards out there that are trying to help us look at that. But a presentation I saw by a gentleman named Chris Magwood recently was highlighting that if you make conscious decisions in the construction of the house sure. about what materials you decide to build the house with, you can, over the 50-year lifespan of a typical home, let's say, arguably have more beneficial impact on the environment than if you build a low-energy home with high-energy materials. So things that are carbon sequestration materials, wood-based and organic materials, if you build just an average home, but with materials that are sequestering carbon and that are renewable and that have very little impact on the environment while they're being produced and transported and installed, you can arguably have a more beneficial impact overall than if you build a house that consumes one-tenth the energy but is built out of foam plastics and concrete. Yeah. And that's an interesting new angle for us to look at things. And it still is not the complete picture because even if we improve how we build new houses, we have to recognize that with some of these stated goals as a, as a country of 2030 or 2050, by the time we get to 2030... Something like 95% of the houses that people live in will have already existed when we set out on that goal today. The new houses that we're building only represent a fraction of the houses that exist in the country and in the world. And all of those houses have an impact on the environment. So what are we going to do about the existing housing stock? How do we solve that problem? That's a tough one too. Well some, of them, well, some of them you just shut them down because they're so inefficient. To, I mean, one, you assume that they can be converted, right? The big monster houses could yeah. be split for two families and yeah. that kind of thing. And also the 15-minute community idea, mm. which is becoming more concrete. You know, there's something about, you know, they say that things really change at the municipal level, at the local level. Yeah. And then as you go outward, you know, it gets more difficult because you have less control. Right. But, you know, here in Ottawa, there's Ecology Ottawa. Just this week, um, I don't know if you know Tom Rand. He wrote a book called Climate Capitalism. No. So I was very skeptical to hear him because, I don't know, it doesn't sound like a good idea. But he had some really good arguments uh, about how you can't, we don't have the time to reinvent our institutions. Like right. the world, uh, you know, the different monetary, world monetary fund, those kinds of, of large financial institutions that are, um, problematic mm -hmm. because they support a type of capitalism that is destructive but what if you reinvented capitalism and is that even possible but you kind of have to work with what you have so I was I was listening to his arguments now we're a bit of a swamp here yeah, we will, you hear our footsteps and we're going to end soon because our, our listeners are, are wondering what happened to my 20, <laughs> 20, 20 25 minute uh, but every every episode now gets a bit longer because mm. I I feel that once you're once you've started listening and you're still there, and if you like the topic, you want more. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll wrap up soon. But anyway, this, this, this guy, Tom, uh, got me thinking. Like you said earlier, you know, you've got to have an open mind to, to, and not judge so much, you know, and say, well, this is right or this is wrong. If somebody is making an effort and somebody's putting an idea out there with integrity, then it's worth listening to and then building, building metaphorically, but building uh, a coalition of interests yeah. of people who want to, literally want to survive. Right. And if they don't survive, if we don't survive as species, then to leave the, uh, with the, as dignified way possible, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Because you know, life, there's no guarantees in life. Nope. We don't know if a, if a meteorite will arrive and destroy us all. We don't know that. Right. We have this false sense of security, you know. Yeah. And which is comes back to reality, you know. Right. Like we were educated and we were taught and everything, but anyway. I like listening, generally speaking, and especially listening to people who are trying to uh, bring us new perspectives and just slightly uh, sharpen mm. our minds and our perspectives. Artists do that, but not just artists, but all kinds of thinkers and doers and people who have uh, a, a very deep commitment to values mm. that are... I'll have to look up that, you said it was climate capitalism? Yep, yep, it just That's, came it's up. It's a very interesting phrase. I, I think that that resonates with me to a certain extent because that that idea that we don't have time to reconstruct all of our, you know, social in, uh, constructs, whatever the correct word is for that, is interesting. We can't just uh, blow it all up and start fresh today. Um, maybe we can. It doesn't seem on the surface like an easy problem that's for sure but the idea one of the things is to, to harken back to architecture as, as a framework for discussing this one of the things that I find very interesting in my design process as an architect is that if you were to show me two possible building sites one is a green field wide open uh, nothing really influencing the site flat easy to build whatever you show me a second site that you know is a steep rock face uh, that has an easement that you can't build across, whatever you have. Inevitably, it seems to be that the site with more constraints results in a more interesting solution. Hmm. And the idea that constraints can actually be of benefit to the creative process is one that I think you can apply to things that, on the surface, appear to be barriers instead of constraints. And capitalism, arguably, is one of those. If we just say we can't do it because it costs too much, we're treating it as a barrier as opposed to us saying the solution needs to be affordable, it becomes a constraint. And we can push against constraints, and in doing so, we can come up with creative solutions. And so that's, I think, one way forward, is to try and identify these, these things that we feel are preventing us from doing what we know we need to do, and bringing them into our process as constraints that influence where we go, rather than prevent us from going where we need to go. That's a very good idea, because artists in particular are used to having constraints of all kinds. Sure. Financial, physical, I mean, the imagination itself is limitless, but the materials that we work with, they're often constrained. Yeah. But you're using it metaphorically as, as a, like a way to work, at, a way to address a problem. Yeah. Instead of, of feeling defeated by the problem, you feel empowered by its possibility. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And with... With sustainability and construction, there's no shortage of constraints that you can find to apply it to yourself. But it is something that I, my, my career path kind of started out as an architect, a more traditional architect working in a, in a traditional practice, to being an energy consultant for residential construction, to trying to be a hybrid of the two. And the reason I felt compelled to go back to being a hybrid of the two was that I saw that adopting sustainable building practices as constraints in the design process was resulting in some interesting things. With my own home, because we wanted to achieve this passive house uh, performance level of low energy, 
we were constrained to high levels of insulation that resulted in our walls being two feet thick. And from a traditional perspective, that's lost real estate. That's square footage that you could have built that could have made you money as an investment. But from an experiential perspective, once the house was finished and we moved into it, the impact of thick walls on how you feel in a space, it's very interesting. It feels much more sheltering. Uh, it gives you these opportunities for nooks and, and to actually engage with the depth of the wall rather than it just being a thin line between you and the exterior. It feels substantial and robust in an interesting way. But it requires that you, you don't stop going down that route because you, you see it as a barrier in the first place. Just accept that square footage is not the driver in this case. Is there anything else we need to talk about, Mark, or shall we... We haven't talked about that you wanted to say. Well, I think we could keep talking for for weeks. I think I'm really pleased that you, that you thought to invite me to come and talk to this. I, I have to admit that when you invited me, I felt almost as if I would be out of my depths because it's uh, it's not the type of conversation that I get to have frequently mm. on this kind of you know thought level. Um, but it's been very rewarding, and I appreciate it, um, the opportunity to have it. I hope, that, I hope that people in general will continue to discuss these things. And I think that you have set up a very interesting context for that by putting out there, back to the original idea that, that art can put out the problem without necessary solution, this idea of climate grief, which, frankly, I, I hadn't registered that as a thought prior to listening to the episode um, but now I have a, a, a beginning of an understanding of what that might be and how that might be disproportionate uh, for different people and how some people might feel that more immediately than others. So it's certainly given me food for thought going forward uh, as I make this next transition in my own life right. and how my career may shift. I'll be interested in, in thinking about what that means. We'll leave it at that. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Cheers. <laughs>